Father, we just thank you for uh, who you are, and uh, Father, just pray for your spirit would fill this place, and uh, that your spirit would teach us, Lord. Just pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I don't know if you guys know it or not, but we're actually going through the book of Colossians, and uh, uh, from time to time they ask me to come in here and like fill in for Bill when he's gone and everything, and so... Uh, like a last last year, I did uh, Colossians. I think we got through uh, verse chapter one, verse twenty three, and so you're you're asking me, well, why is he telling us all this? Is because if when you get asked to speak, it's always in the past. My dilemma was, is what do I talk about? What should I talk about today? And and so after I don't know a few years of that, I sort of <laughs> duh. Why don't I just do like I do when I do at home fellowship or just go through a book? And so so you guys don't realize that we're actually going through the book of Colossians together. It's just like, you know, there's a year in between the uh, the meetings. So uh, so having said that, uh, I, I think I owe it to you to give you a little background on the book of Colossians because you haven't thought about it in a year at least, probably since maybe... Not even since two o'clock in the afternoon since the last time that we uh, we did it. So uh, basically, the book of Colossians is uh, is written by Paul, but it was towards the end of his life. He's actually in prison uh, when he wrote this uh, letter. He wrote uh, a collection of letters to the church in Ephesus. We know that the book of Ephesians, and then he he wrote to the people in Philippi. So that's the Philippians, and then. Colossians that we're going to talk about today, and then also he wrote uh, Philemon. Uh, so he'd never actually been there, never been to the place, and that's kind of outside the norm for Paul because he kind of had this routine. He would go through, he would go into an area, he would preach the gospel, stay there a couple of weeks, appoint elders, and he would leave. And he'd move on to the next spot, and then he had this little circuit, come back and he would visit them, or he would write letters back to them, and that's his normal mode. And I think what happened was he realized that, that uh, he could kind of like uh, expand his reach if he was to stay in Ephesus. And he stayed in Ephesus and he had kind of like a Bible college there. And uh, they sent people out from Ephesus to start churches. And so the people that were in his Bible college, they were the ones that actually started this church in uh, Colossae. So... Uh, I guess we got to ask, why did he write the letter? Uh, and uh, because if you understand why he wrote the letter, and then the stuff that's in the letter tends to make more sense. You know, it's just, yeah, it's just not like, hey, we're reading. We're kind of looking over somebody's shoulder, and we're reading a letter that uh, was written to somebody else. You're going to see it was actually written to us too. So, but the the reason he wrote was uh, there was some issues in the church, and the first one is Gnosticism. And that's kind of a big word, but basically uh, uh, they were all about knowledge, okay? It was kind of like there was an exclusive club, uh, and they tended to think that they knew more than the apostles did. So this is kind of like an outside force that's trying to work its way into this uh, Colossian church. And these guys were, like I say, all about knowledge, and you'll see he brings the idea of knowledge up and wisdom a lot in the letter because he's doing that to kind of refute what these uh, guys that are coming in and trying to change things around. Uh, 
there was a lot of secular philosophy that was coming in. Secular meaning something from outside the church, just kind of philosophy in general. And um, but back to the Gnostics, uh, the Gnostics uh, they had these kind of strange ideas that that uh, uh, spirit is good and matter is bad. So you know, spirit is good and matter is bad. And so if you follow that out to its, uh, I guess, logical conclusion, uh, they didn't believe that God was actually the creator. They believed that God uh, uh, created a creature, and that creature created another creature, and that creature cre- created another creature. You get the idea. And eventually ends up Jesus that, that creates the universe. So... And, uh, and, and so they didn't believe that Jesus was God. They felt like Jesus was, uh, he fit somewhere in between man and the angels in the whole realm of beings. So, but the bottom line, uh, let me say one thing else. So if you mix in like a hybrid uh, Judaism, okay, you mix that in along with, uh, you know, these uh, secular philosophies. So they had a real hodgepodge of stuff trying to infilt- infiltrate itself into the church. And so, basically, that's why he was writing the letter. And if you want to just distill all that down, uh, that what was coming out of this is they're saying that Jesus is not God. As simple as that. And so he's writing this letter to kind of refute that. That's the whole idea behind it. And uh, if you've been coming on Wednesday nights, they're going through the book of John. And the book of John was written, written considerably later. They had Matthew, Mark, and Luke that wrote their gospel. And then the, the gospel of John happened considerably later, actually even after this Colossian letter was written. And the reason that John wrote his uh, gospel, if you look at the end of it, he says the reason that he wrote it so that you would know that Jesus is God. Okay, so the, the stuff that Paul is kind of like... Uh, trying to nip this stuff in the bud, so to speak, in the Colossian church. But it still continued on. It's continued on to today. There's definitely uh, uh, places where you can go that kind of pretend that they're Christians or whatever, but they'll deny that Jesus is God. And you can always know if you're in a good place or a bad place based on the fact that, you know, who do you say Jesus is? And if Jesus is God, you're, you're probably pretty safe, okay? But if there's anything else, that you're kind of off on a tangent. You're kind of dealing with some of the things that Paul deals with in this Colossian letter. So, so that's the, the kind of the overview of, you know, that. And so just to give you a, a quick uh, review of between uh, uh, Colossians 1.1 to Colossians 1.23, which we covered last year. Uh, if you want to know all the details, you can uh, you can always go back and listen to the audio files on the internet. But uh, basically, uh, one of the big things that he does when he starts out the letter, he starts praying for these people in the in the Colossian church, and he's and he's thank in the prayer, he's thanking them for their faith in Jesus and their love for the saints and their hope of heaven. And he kind of in my estimation, kind of sets the Colossian church out here kind of like a model church, actually, in how they were acting. I mean, he was giving them, you know, props, saying, hey, you guys are getting all this right. Uh, so uh, 
the next thing he does in there mixed in with that is uh, he starts uh, beginning his case against Gnosticism by uh, calling out the true message of the gospel. He's saying, I gave you the true message of the gospel. I mean, this is the good news that gets you into heaven. And, uh, and he emphasized uh, uh, to the Colossians that they were filled uh, with the knowledge. Okay, here again, the Gnostics were all about knowledge, right? And head stuff. And so uh, Paul's reminding them, hey, you're filled with the knowledge of God's will. Okay, not some men around you trying to tell you, you know, well, I'm smarter than you and this is what you need to believe. But you're actually filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then he follows that right up with the next thing he talks about is why do we have this knowledge of God's will? And it's pretty simple, really. It says that so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In other words, so that you would live out your life. He says, so he's not knocking knowledge in, these, in the beginning. He's saying the reason that you have it is so that you can turn around and put that to use and do the things that God would have you to do. So we also talked about uh, nuclear glue. So I'm not going to go into nuclear glue. If you want to know about that, you can go listen to the audio file, but it's in there. Um, uh, we did talk about redemption and just a redemption in a little package is that God made us, right? And so then he paid the price to get us back. So he made us and we're here and now we're lost. Jesus pays the price, that's redemption, to get us back, okay? Jesus does that for us on the cross. And then there's uh, reconciliation. And reconciliation is kind of like redemption, but what happens is, is that Jesus paid the price, we're redeemed, okay? But that once we believe that God did that for us, okay, now we're reconciled with God. Because until we uh, accept the fact that there is a, uh, a problem between God and us because God's perfect and we're not, okay, we need somebody to intervene for us and, and to make us right with God. And so when we believe that Jesus paid the penalty for us on the cross, when we believe that he did that for us, and then God says, you know what? I see you are as righteous, and now we're reconciled with God. So Jesus redeemed everyone, but not everybody is reconciled until they accept what Jesus did for them on the cross. So that's kind of a brief overview of uh, one, 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 one through 123. So we're going to start today at uh, Colossians 124. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read 124 through 29, then we'll come back and we'll kind of look at some of the stuff in there. <clears throat> he says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of the body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages, from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. That's a run-on sentence, if you're wondering there. Uh, it says, To them God will make known uh, what are the riches of his glory and this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom 
that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Okay, so go back and we're going to look at uh, verse 24. And Paul says, and I'll be honest with you, I kind of struggled with this one when I first looked at it. Uh, but eventually, I'm good with it now. It says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and to fill up my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. So the thing that kind of got to me is, is that Paul's saying he rejoices in his sufferings and to fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And so it's almost like you could look at that and say, well, is there something lacking in Christ, you know, for my salvation? And uh, to be honest with you, I'm going to tell you the answer is no. But, and the, the reason I know this is I, man, I thought I read this verse a, a lot of times, and I did a lot of study onto it. And what, I think what is really happening here is that, the, the way it broke down for me, there's, there's really uh, two types of suffering and affliction here. There's two types. There's suffering and affliction for salvation, which we know that Jesus went through. We know everything that Jesus suffered. And so we have that for salvation. And uh, then there's a suffering and affliction for persecution. Okay? And so this isn't something that I just dreamed up. Okay? It's actually... Uh, uh, Paul's interaction with Jesus on the road to Damascus kind of demonstrates this. So, uh, uh, if if you got a Bible and you're and you're uh, opening to the Bible to the different places, it's going to be in Acts chapter nine, starting in verse three. But uh, the idea of when Paul was on the road to Damascus, uh, uh, he was actually a Pharisee and. Uh, at this point, his name was actually Saul, and he was going to Damascus to persecute Christians. He was like working with the high priest. He had all the paperwork lined up. He was actually rounding up Christians and uh, going to bring them back to persecute them. Okay, so while he's on the road, and starting Acts chapter 9, verse 3, it says, As he journeyed, journeyed he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone on him from heaven. You've, you've heard the phrase, blinded by the light, right? This is where it comes from. He says, then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, this is Paul, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Okay, so think about that. Paul's on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, and Jesus intervenes and uh, says, you know, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus, even though he paid the ultimate price, he still sees uh, if you're being persecuted, you're persecuting Jesus. See, see what I'm saying? So this is the affliction that's going on there. If we read the next thing, it says to, and I'm on the same passage, he says, uh, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so uh, we don't really talk about goads that often anymore on a normal conversation, but it was a, uh, I've heard it described different ways. Uh, it could be just a, a stick that was blunt on one end and had a sharp point on the other. And so when they had have an ox hooked up to a plow, sometimes the ox didn't want to do the deed, right? So he'd start kicking. 
And so the guy could take this goad, it's a sharp point, and jab him, jab him in the back of the legs. And so he'd be like, oh, don't do that. That hurts, you know, so it's, it's inevitable. It's, in other words, and after a while, the, the ox learns, hey, don't kick because there's some severe pain involved in that. Sometimes it would actually be hooked up to the plow itself. So, so Paul knew exactly what he was, what Jesus was saying to him. He says, when he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads because that was, uh, you know, in, when an ox was the, you know, the beast of burden, he knew that he was basically embarking on a futile task, his idea of going out and persecuting Christians. And so in, in verse 6, he says, So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. So in this whole scene, you can see that Jesus is, feels the afflictions for the church okay and so if you go back to paul saying now i rejoice in my sufferings and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of christ and that so paul is sharing in that now and 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 he says for the sake of his body which is the church okay so i i when i started looking at this and i'm thinking about it i had to come back to that first phrase where it says he says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. If you think about it, I mean, rejoice. He's, that means he's having joy, right, over sufferings. And that's really kind of counter to the way we normally think about things. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to take a little closer look at that because I think it might have some application. Well, it did for me, hopefully for you too. So... It says um, we get more from it when we get to this Paul's conversion experience. So back in Acts again in uh, chapter 9, uh, verses 10 through 16, it says, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and put his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. You know what's going on here, right? Uh, I mean, whenever I read this, it amazes me every time. So Ananias is getting a vision. And in the vision, basically Jesus is telling him, hey, Paul's having a vision that a man named, that basically you're going to go there, right, and help him out with his vision. So uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, uh, then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he has a chosen vessel of mine to hear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. And then the next sentence is really amazing. He goes, For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. There's a couple of things coming out of that. First of all, you get the the least likely guy of anyone. He's out persecuting Christians. I mean, he's a bad guy, a bad, bad guy. And God says, You know what? No, I want that guy. All right? 
So if you're ever thinking, ah, oh, no, I'm really bad. There's nothing. God could do nothing, nothing with me. I don't know if you could get any worse than Paul was. So you're going to have to take that, get rid of that thought, okay? All right? So that's one thing. But what's even more remarkable, he says, he says, let me explain. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul knew in advance. Okay, remember we're talking about suffering? Paul says, I rejoice. So um, it just blows me away that, that it doesn't look like it when you're reading through the book of Acts, but there's about a three-year period from the time that he sees the light until he actually embarks on his missionary journeys. So for those three years, I think the Holy Spirit is working on Paul, and he was obviously a scholar in the Old Testament, and he was just kind of reworking his thinking on, hey, this is what these Old Testament scriptures really mean. So, and if you notice, when you read most of his letters, he's constantly referring back to the Old Testament, constantly. Okay, so he's uh, worked on Paul, and so he showed Paul during his time, this is how you're going to suffer. Yeah, but Paul, even knowing how he's going to suffer, I think the Holy Spirit revealed to Paul during that time the big picture. And it's like, so what? Let's go for it, okay? That's how good God is, okay? So his suffering, he actually documents some of his suffering in Second um, Corinthians, okay? And so Second Corinthians uh, chapter 11 uh, verses 22 through 29. Okay, to give you the background on this, a lot of times, you know, we think like a Paul, he's like a super missionary, uh, like a super Christian, like maybe Mr. Goody Two-Shoes to the max, right? But uh, when I read this, I'm thinking that, hey, you know what, Paul, he's a smart guy, but I think he was uh, maybe a little on the feisty side because there were some people coming into Corinth and they were kind of, talking trash about Paul as a, you know, as a, you know, as the, as an apostle. And so this is how he responds to the Corinthians about, uh, uh, these teachers. He goes, he goes, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? <laughs> I speak as a fool. He says, I am more in labors, more abundant in stripes above measure. Okay, stripes is when they take the cat of nine tails and they lay it across your back. Okay, so every time they hit, that's a stripe. So he says, in stripes above measure. I mean, I think he's basically saying they haven't experienced any of this. So we're talking about his sufferings right now. He says, in prisons more frequently. And death often, and there is a, a chronicles in Acts at least one time where Paul says he's taken up into the third heaven. So I think he was maybe was dead and was brought back. And 24 says, from the Jews, five times I re- received 40 stripes minus one. So that means that he got beat 39 times. It was kind of the accepted norm that if you got 40 lashes, you were dead. Okay. So if you got 39, it was pretty much uh, uh, a reality that you were basically beat within an inch of your life. So, so uh, he says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have, 
I have been in the deep. See, I guess I lost out at sea. And journeys often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils from my own countrymen. Ah, that hurts. The people around you know that you know. He says, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides other things, (laughs) what comes upon me daily my deep concern for all the churches. So in the midst of all this basically physical stuff, he's got this mental anguish that's going on where he's thinking about the churches. So I'd say that uh, Paul had suffered considerably. I mean, when I read through that list, it's like, uh, maybe I don't really have any problems. But, but in Philippians uh, chapter 4, he kind of gives us some insight in how do you deal with that, Okay. How do you deal with that? He says in uh, Philippians 4, verse 10, he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. So evidently, he, the Philippian church had been supplying him with uh, you know, money to live in prison because back then, you, if you're in prison, somebody had to provide you with the, you know, the cash to, so you could eat and you know, stay alive. And so evidently there was probably something, a lag, something happened and the money didn't come on time. Maybe he was getting like really, really hungry. And so he says, uh, when he says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now your last care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care but lacked the opportunity. He says, not that I speak in regard to need. He says, for I have learned, okay? This is the key. He says, for I've learned whatever state I'm in to be content. I know how to be abased. That means like things are going bad. And I know how to abound. Okay, things are going really good. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And then he finishes up. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So... All the stuff that Paul has went through, I think that what has happened is, is that, you know, he just, he says, he's learned, you know, it's not always going to be good. And when it's good, it's good. But you know what? It's not always going to be good. And you just need to be able to learn that. It's not something that's just, I don't think Paul isn't being super spiritual here. He's being honest that, you know, it's not always going to be great. And, but you can learn to deal with it. You know, First Corinthians ten thirteen says that, God's not going to give anything you can't handle, okay? So, uh, so, so if we go back here, he says, what I want to get to is the why. Because, you know, you can, you know, we can talk about all these different points, but then you've got to understand, you know, the why. Why could Paul rejoice in those sufferings, right? Uh, and so it, I'm going to read it again. He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings. Who? For you. Okay, yeah, and, then, and then he says, he says, and fill up my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of who? His body, which is the church. So everything that he's rejoicing in, Paul is looking out. He's looking outward. Okay, and so uh, the, I, I thought of this uh, question 
in, or, or a thought that I want you to have. I want you to think of people that you know uh, that are always helping others. Just imagine that person. There's probably somebody you know right now that you've thought of just like that. Now I want to ask you this. Are they happy? Are they happy? I could name names, but I'm just going to just say, hey, I could name names. But is that person happy? Yeah. So now you, you get where I'm going with this? Paul says that, you know, uh, I can rejoice in my sufferings for you. All right? So um, Paul, when he was on his way back to uh, Jerusalem, he basically finished all of his, his missionary journeys, and he stops by Ephesus to talk to the elders there. And, uh, you know, he'd spent three years there. He'd developed some really good relationships with those people. He's kind of going through the stuff, kind of talking to them, basically saying, you know, hey, it's going to be the last time you're going to see me. And he's really making a connection. You know, he's down on the pier. I'm kind of partial to this. He's getting ready to sail off, you know. I spent 20 years in the Navy. I can see him and they're waving goodbye and all this, you know. But this is, this is what he says to them towards the end of his little talk. In Acts 20.35, he says, And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said. What did he say? It is more blessed to give than to receive. What does that word blessed mean? Happy. Happy, happy, happy. Blessed, when you translate it into the real word, is happy. So he's saying he is more happy to give than to receive. So... I guess, I guess what I took away from this is that if you want to achieve happiness, you need to give something away. You need to go out. You need to help people. And it seems like every time that I come up here to speak, there's a group of people that are out on some sort of a mission thing. And then, now I want you to remember now, the next week or whatever, when they come back, they come up here, are they happy? They're happy. Because you know what? They just went out and they gave they gave. They were more concerned about somebody else than they were concerned about themselves. I'm telling you, if you're down and you're navel-gazing, what you need to do is you need to get up and go help somebody, do something for somebody else, because that's what God would have you to do. Yes? Make your head go like this. Yes, that's true. Okay? So... I want to bring out one word that I haven't talked about in this verse 124. He says, he says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Get it? I now rejoice. Because a lot of times when you're going through it, you're not rejoicing. Paul is basically saying, you know what? Looking back, hey, it's awesome. But, you know, when, when he was challenged in the Corinthian leather, he was kind of feisty. Hey, look, man, I went through this and this and this and this. But he's saying, but now, when I look back, hey, this is all right. It's a good deal. You with me? Yeah. So it's now I'm not just trying to paint a picture because I know there was a period and a time in my life where I went and I worked and I, and I took a job that was just... People, I think my family thought I was crazy. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, there was hardship in our family. I mean, serious, like, I mean, we'd go through the grocery store and it'd be like, 
with a calculator, we get to a certain point, oh, we've got to start putting stuff back, you know, in that mode there. And I'll be honest with you, I wasn't like clicking my heels and being real happy at that point in time. But I can look back on that now. I can look back on that time and say, you know what? That's a good thing. You know, I learned a lot there. And it kind of moved me to the place that I am right now, which is really, really good. It's kind of like Job. Job went through all this stuff, bad, bad, bad stuff. But in the end, God restored him to something really much better. So anyway. You just want to remember Romans 8.28, right? We know that all things work together for good. All things. To those who love God are called according to his purpose. At some point, you're going to see, why did I go through all this? And it's going to be in the form of you helping somebody else. I've seen that happen in my life. Okay? So anyway, enough with that. Let's move on to uh, the, the rest here. It says... He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up my flesh. I'm at verse 24 again, so I'll just kind of get it back into context again. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up my flesh. What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship, or another word that we could use there is the dispensation from God, which was given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God. So this whole idea of a stewardship, to give you a quick understanding, in biblical days, a steward would be kind of like the main guy. He would be in charge of the master stuff, right? And maybe if you could imagine, they would have a, a like a locker over here that had all the, the food and everything would be in it. And, and so somebody would need something, he'd go unlock it, and he would dispense out the stuff that they needed to run the household, okay? That's what the steward's job was, okay? And so if you think about it, he's like a dispenser, right? And so what, what Paul's saying here is this, he, he's kind of giving himself qualifications. He says, he says uh, uh, which I became a minister according to the stewardship or the dispensation from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. He says, the mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. So we need to talk about mystery. Because mystery in biblical days is different than a mystery today. It di- has a totally different meaning. Today, you know, you look at Columbo or, you know, whatever, an Agatha Ag- 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 Christie uh, uh, show or whatever. Uh, you know, there's like this, ooh, there's this little thing, who done it? And we're trying to figure it all out. And, you know, and at the end, you know, bam, Sherlock figures it out. It's not like that, okay? A mystery, when they talk about it here, is like, okay, this stuff has been going on for years. God has got this plan that he's got going, and then, boom, wow, now I get it, right? Have no idea. It's like instant, okay? So this is the type of thing. So when he talks about mystery, don't think like, oh, they were trying to figure it out. No, it's like in, in this New Testament time, God reveals new stuff to them, okay? And Paul uses this because the Gnostics, they would, because, you know, they're all hoity-toity, I'm really smart, they would kind of use that concept to, you know, to kind of lord over people, all right? So, 
Anyway, to them God will, in verse 27, it says, To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. Okay, that's the mystery because now this is something that's brand new because before, you know, God was the God of Israel. And so now it's like, okay, the mystery that's been revealed here is Christ in you. In other words, the Colossians, the Gentiles. That would be us, okay? He says in 28, he says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And to this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Okay, what are they trying to do? That we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. This follows along with this idea that, you know, the the people that are infiltrating the church are trying to say, well, we have a better way and this is what the apostles are talking about isn't right. No, Paul says we present every man perfect. And the only way that you can be perfect is to have the righteousness of God. And the only way that you can have the righteousness of God is by accepting that Jesus paid the penalty on the cross. I keep saying this over and over and over again, but that's what it's all about. It's just... Not that complicated. So anyway, so in Colossians 2, starting verse 1 through 3, says, uh, or actually 1 through 4, it says, I want, to know, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for those in Laodicea. Did I say I have for you and those in Laodicea? So this idea of conflict, when I first read that, I'm thinking, oh, Paul was like in internal turmoil over this, you know, maybe anxiety or something. So I got the computer program, you know, I can click on the word and it'll bring up the Greek stuff. And, and really, the, I was kind of shocked because this word here, um, it really uh, has to do with uh, uh, the idea of a conflict or even a battle where there's a prize at stake. And they would kind of use it in the context of they would go to the big stadiums and there would be like two teams and, you know, you kind of had to choose your side, you know, it's like a Raider Chargers game. I know you're at the dilemma. You got to pick, you know, pick your side, right? And so, uh, well, maybe not this year, but uh, <coughs> sorry, goodness. I, I convinced myself I wasn't going to do that, and I did it anyway. But anyway, <laughs> but uh, so 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 anyway, uh, what Paul is doing is he's kind of setting the stage here. When he says, I have this conflict, uh, basically he's saying, hey, at some point you've got to choose. Are you going to choose, you know, uh, the, the, the truth of Christ or the error of these uh, Gnostics or these uh, philosophers? It's kind of laying down the gauntlet. I mean, it's just not, oh, it's not now I'm upset. No, hey, I'm going to tell you something here and, hey, you need to, like, make a choice. All right? So, uh, let me start at verse 1 again. It says, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. So it wasn't just in the uh, the Colossian church. It says, For as many of you have not seen my face in the flesh. Okay, so here again, I want to talk about when you're reading this stuff, we're not reading a letter to the Colossians exclusively. Because Paul's saying it right here. He says, 
He says, and for as many uh, as have not seen my face in the flesh. That would include us, right? Yeah? Yeah. So Paul's writing this letter to us. What we're looking at is what I call timeless truth, okay? It's just not some obscure book. No, it's a message from God to me, from God to you. He says that in their hearts they may be encouraged, all right, in your hearts, in my heart, that I be encouraged, being knit together in love, attaining all riches and the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he says, now I say this, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words, for I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and steadfastness in your faith in Christ. So Paul talked about wisdom in uh, 1 Corinthians 2. And uh, so I want to read that. It's 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 25. It says, For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. You get that? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. You know, and a lot of people would say, What? Jesus died on the cross for my sins and now I can go to heaven? Give me a break, right? So Paul is saying right here, he says, For the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Okay, here again. Everything that the Colossian church was faced with, we're going to see in a minute, we're faced with it too, okay? He says, As you therefore have received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. Okay, I I put a little note here. It says, be a Christian seven days a week, okay? Rooted and built up in him. Established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. An attitude of gratitude. I mean, really stop and think about things could be bad, things could be good. But in the end, we're going to be in heaven. Thank God for that, okay? Trust me, the older you get, the more you think about that. That is going to be so awesome, okay? Anyway. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Okay, so this here is where this, the issue, I think, bring it home to like today, right now, right here. Timeless truth. Paul's talking to the Colossian church about this. He's talking to us. Uh, and so this idea, what does he say? Uh, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Okay, so I, philosophy is basically, it's the, uh, the love of wisdom. They break it down. That's what the word means. Love of wisdom. Uh, it says, and, and I would say right now, 
the predominant anti-Christian philosophy is something called secular humanism. Okay, you may or may not have heard of secular humanism, but you've probably heard of uh, progressive, okay? This idea of uh, progressives, uh, progressive insurance, uh, you know, kind of cute little Geico guy or whatever, you know, but whatever. Progressives is uh, kind of like a, it's a, I don't know what you call it. It's kind of like a religion almost in our current day, all right? So, but it's, out of that came this thing called uh, secular humanism. And so it's not new. It's not new. It, it really kind of kind of got birthed around at, in the early 1900s. But in 1933, they produced something called the Humanist Manifesto. Okay, it was the first one. There's a total of three now. But the very first one and, uh, was in 1933. And so I just want to, I'm just going to read you three points. There's many more. But this is what it says here. Religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. What does the Bible say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right? Next one. Humanism believes that man is part of nature and that he has emerged as a result of a continuous process. Okay? The Bible says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish, over the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. So another one. Holding an organic view of life, humanists find that traditional dualism of mind and body must be rejected. Matthew ten twenty eight. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him, fear, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. It, and it just goes on and on and on. And so there was a couple of, I'm just really giving you a fast overview of this, but uh, a couple of the signers of the original Humanist Manifesto, John Dewey, you may or may not have heard of John Dewey, but if you're old enough to remember libraries and the Dewey Decimal System, John Dewey was the, he created that. And it's a good thing, actually, uh, back in the days of books. Uh, but uh, he, he's also the father of American education. And I spent a couple of years of my life teaching at school, and it's like, teachers like, John Dewey, John Dewey, oh, he's like the man. He kind of got it all going. He signed the original Humanist Manifesto. And a partner of his, called his name was Charles Potter. Let me read you this quote from Charles Potter. He said, Education is thus a most powerful ally of humanism. And every American school is a school of humanism. What can a theistic, that's a God-teaching Sunday school, meeting for an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the children do to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teaching. Okay? So I'm not talking about a, a conspiracy theory. You can go on the Internet, you can read this. And then if you go look at the subsequent humanist manifestos, they, they really kind of build on this. And just to show you where we're at here... Um, the National Education Association, 
this is 2016, and they're going through their different points that they have there. It says, all scientific theories are tentative. Scientific theories can be revised, rejected, or superseded based on investigations that follow the scientific method. Some examples of things that have been refuted by science include the flat earth, vaccine-caused autism, and creationism. Yeah, I was on their site a couple of years ago, and I was looking for something called intelligent design. And so what, it, what intelligent design is, is it doesn't necessarily say that God created it. It could be an alien. It could be anything. It's just saying that something else created us. And I went back there when I was preparing for this, and I was looking for that. And yeah, Because they basically had said the exact same thing about intelligent design a couple of years ago, but it was, wasn't on the, on the website anymore. So... There is definitely uh, an, what I call an on-purpose movement within our schools to just uh, just scrub God from the whole equation. And uh, if you look at some of the scientific theories on uh, you know that that would be opposite of creation, you have to have more faith to believe that than you do believe that there is a creator. Uh, I mean, it's definitely not what I would call science. Okay, so then we got social media. We're almost done. Social media. Okay, 2.7 billion monthly active users of social media overall. That includes WhatsApp, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So that's once a month, that many people. At least once a month. Okay, Facebook... 1.2 1.2 billion daily log into Facebook. 1.2 billion users. Check this one out. 50% of all 18 to 24-year-olds go on Facebook when they wake up. Okay? And so uh, uh, there's the what I call the impact of the content. Okay? That's there. You know, every, anybody that's been on Facebook, I don't actually have a Facebook account, but, but I've, uh, I've, I've looked at it, and I know what it's all about. And, and my wife will say, oh, look at this on Facebook, and I'll get the phone, and I'll go like this. And then she'll say, what are you doing? And I'll look up, and, like, who knows how much time has passed. You're just, and you, maybe you're on a friend of a friend, somebody. Now you're looking at somebody you don't even know. You know, I'm thinking, what's, what's up with that? And so, you know, that itself is probably not a big deal. No harm, no foul. But when you consider the time, okay, the time. You know, time is precious. And I'm thinking, okay, if people would spend, oh, let's just be crazy, one-tenth the time that they spend on Facebook reading the Bible, just one-tenth. Oh, my gosh. We'd have a room full of theologians here. It would be amazing. It would be amazing. So, go back. How do we get to this? Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. So, the philosophy is coming in through the schools. Okay? So, you know, it's coming in through the schools. And I find myself at work just reasoning with people. Hey, have you ever thought about it like this? You know, just, just reasoning with people, not pounding on a Bible or anything. And it's, it's amazing how many people will go, 
Well, you know, I never really thought about it like that. It's because they're constantly being bombarded by this message. And I think the last uh, political season, I think you probably saw that front and center, you know, everywhere. So, so it's, you know, so it's kind of startling when 18 to 24 year olds are waking up and, you know, looking at social media. So, so anyway, uh, the empty deceit, the emptiness to me is the whole Facebook routine. I'm looking at Facebook for hours, just whiling the time away. Okay, it says according to tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And then in verse nine, he says, "For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily." See, you don't need any of that, and you are complete. You are complete in Him, who is the head of all principality and power. You know, when it's all said and done, it's still all about Jesus and we know how it's going to end it's going to be all about Jesus in the end okay so at some point I don't know like I'm just like almost reckless abandon talking to people about stuff that it may be in the past I would be like oh should I say this or should I not you know I'm saying the time is now to go for it so let's re- just do a quick review so we talked really about really about two things today and the first one is how Paul could rejoice in his suffering and basically what turn your focus outward and and that joy isn't necessarily in the moment okay sometimes you don't realize that joy until maybe years later okay the second one is is don't get caught up in the philosophy or empty deceit of the world right so at 2 o'clock this afternoon, somebody's going to call you up and say, what did they talk about today in church? Right? How Paul could rejoice in his suffering, right? And don't get caught up in the philosophy or empty deceit of the world. Let me read you one last verse and then we'll pray and we'll go. It says, this is Jesus. Uh, we, we did this a couple of weeks ago on Wednesday night. And uh, Jesus just went through this whole thing telling his disciples how, hey, you know, Things aren't always going to go good. There's going to be persecution. You know, they, they persecuted me, so they're going to persecute you. And then you know, what he says, he says, I've told you these things so that you may, so that in me you may have peace. Okay? And he's telling them, hey, bad stuff is coming. And he says, I told you these things so that in me you may have peace. And he says, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for Jesus, and we know that uh, we know how it all ends. And Father, I just pray that uh, we'd open our mouth and we'd be a witness for you. That in the end, it's not going to be about philosophy or you know social media or whatever. It's just going to be about you, Lord. And we just thank you that you've uh, trusted this uh, to us. Just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.